Um, I want to begin with deep appreciation to Chen Xing, who is uh, joining us remotely, but also for the second time in the past few months. So you were at BCC in June, I think. Uh, yeah, yes, so that's right. It's just, it's just wonderful to continue the conversation in some ways, and also to take up this new conversation about Be the Refuge, which was our summer reading as a, as a community. Um, maybe just to begin, maybe it's also because it's Zoom, <laughs> I just want to welcome us each to just take a few breaths and arrive in our bodies and arrive uh, with whatever is present for us, whatever it is we're bringing with us into our gathering this evening. And having um, a real intention of including everything that is present. And again, just before we started um, talking with Chen Sing and Kaishin, Kaishin was echoing a feeling I was having of some nervousness <laughs> and, and understanding that that and like a feeling of, of nervousness was rooted in how important this conversation feels and how much care we all want to bring to it. I think in the book, it's that, that Chen Sing Sensing has offered it's it's so clearly rooted in in love and in care and in the um, complexity of, of this conversation about Asian American identity in Buddhist sanghas and um, yeah it's very present for me as well. When we met when we met earlier this week or last week to talk about this event, um, Kaishin and Sensing and I. One of the things that came up was to was a request to start with acknowledging the lineage, the, uh, the Soto Zen lineage that that well, at least Kaishin and I are in, and that Brooklyn Zen Center is located in. That is that comes from San Francisco Zen Center, rooted in the teacher, the original teacher of Suzuki Roshi, and and some of just to acknowledge some of the history of Asian American erasure in this lineage that we have. Um, Kaishin said something like, you know, without the Japanese American Sangha inviting Suzuki Roshi to come to Sokoji, there wouldn't be Suzuki Roshi in the United States. <laughs> and it's like right there in that essential um, acknowledgement that actually it was Asian American community that is the root of, of this lineage that came from Suzuki Roshi's teaching. Um, and then for myself, as I've been thinking about that since we met, realizing it also wouldn't have been without the, the deep devotion and tenacity and care and um, loving stewardship of lineage that many Japanese American and Asian American communities have held the Dharma in for centuries, despite a lot of um, racial and cultural biases and prejudice. And then particularly the way that, that the lineages were held through the traumatic um, internment and concentration camps of American citizens of Japanese descent during World War II, um, that people were holding that um, a deep devotion despite that 
sometimes being dangerous even for their well-being and people being targeted because of Buddhist practice. Um, so for me, there's this, um, all of this is alive in the pain of erasure of Asian American communities being the root of Buddhist practice in the United States. Um, and this, and, and the, these, the strains of, I think it's has racial and um, cultural components, but also religious discrimination that elevates white cultural normative things and Christianity in particular, that was, that again, like historically has been something um, for Buddhist communities to negotiate. And then particularly in like the streams of these fed into how the internment of American citizens of Japanese descent could even have happened. And just how present those are, I think for me, I, I did a lot of my training at San Francisco Zen Center in the San Francisco Bay Area, that history is very much alive. You know? And it, I, I think I trained at San Francisco Zen Center for a number of years before um, realizing that the folks at Sekoji, who were the home temple of Suzuki Roshi, that was recent history when um, mm. some folks outside of that community, predominantly white American people say hippies, <laughs> in the late 50s and early 60s, were coming to study with Suzuki Roshi. And it was also several years of me practicing in that community before I, um, I think it, I felt it in my body, but actually articulated into my consciousness that um, an ethnic division was a part of what actually led to the founding of San Francisco Zen Center. Um, there was, I think it was, the history as I understand it from, uh, from a few people who were there was that the Japanese American community at Sokoji where Suzuki Roshi was teaching. And then the folks who were coming from outside of that community, again, like predominantly white folks, but not exclusively, um, were not finding a way to, to uh, practice together harmoniously. And when I brought this, when I, I remember a number of times bringing this um, pain of this rupture actually in the community that ended up creating San Francisco Zen Center as a separate place. Um, I've been reminded by a number of people, well, the, well, the folks at Sokoji wanted this. They were, they were frustrated by the predominantly white Americans who were not aligning with the cultural normative things at, at Sokoji. Um, but for me that there's pain right there of a question of, well, why not? actually. Why, why was that uh, bridge they didn't cross? And then I can see for myself the complexity of if they had, when I came through the doors in the 1990s seeking the Dharma and, and a place of refuge, what would I have found? And I can acknowledge that, um, you know, when I came through those doors and San Francisco Zen Center culturally was a predominantly white American place, that was familiar to me, I felt an ease that was a part of me finding the Dharma and staying. And, and yet also there's this pain of, um, that at least for many years in my time there, that it wasn't, I didn't, there wasn't a lot of this history acknowledged. So I think um, today, one of the things we can really um, take heart in is what is our responsibility to this history? 
how do we include it and how do we care for it? When we were talking last week about in preparation for this, um, Kaishin said, what I really want is for us to learn together how to include this pain and also um, how to care for it, how to let it be something that, that lives in our communities. I was, I was also sharing that um, when be, the, the, uh, this is the second time I've read Be the Refuge and the second time through when I got to the place where Chen Tsing, you're really describing what being the refuge is, something it awoke in me was that um, a lot of my, um, in, in a lot of my life I've oriented towards things that are painful, that I'd like to be the solution. <laughs> I'd like to be the fix. I'd like to help be the remedy. And it's not that those things aren't still present, but there was something about either refuge that felt wider to me and more spacious. Um, that a refuge actually is a place where the pain is not solved or, or gone away, but actually skillfully included and honored. And so we were talking about how this this you know what we're what we're really doing in this conversation and hopefully ongoingly is opening to this complexity. Um, in this fall, we have in the practice period, the theme of a practice engagement of non-duality and that feels very present for me the whole time I was reading Be the Refuge over the summer. And I just wanna turn to one quote from um, toward the end of the book on page 246, 247. Um, Chenson, you wrote, some, some may dismiss us as mere, quote, cultural Buddhists, but we know that all Buddhists are cultural Buddhists. All of us have inherited cultural roots. All of us are being shaped by and are always shaping the cultures we live in. The young adult Asian, Buddha, Asian American Buddhists I interviewed are not so much cultural Buddhists as they are culturally engaged Buddhists. They understand that the many manifestations of culture, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and so on are not a grime to be wiped off or a dross to be transcended, but a phenomena that we must thoroughly explore and fully engage if we are to realize a truly inclusive American Buddhism. And then you said, best of all, you don't even have to be Asian American to be a culturally engaged Buddhist, which means that the possibilities for solidarity are truly boundless. And I feel like this conversation is a sincere offering to solidarity. And then just lastly, before turning it over, I want to, um, I want to name Aaron Lee and evoke his presence, um, which again, Chen Sing, you so beautifully do throughout the book. I feel like Aaron's life and what he set into motion, like the book is a collaboration and then this evening, about it earlier, I thought like, and so is this conversation that we get to be in collaboration with Aaron. And I was reading earlier today, the memorial article you wrote about him in Lion's Roar, where you said that you're feeling about angry, the blog, Angry Ages and Buddhists is, they're actually love letters to American Buddhist communities. And I really, that struck me so deeply. And I felt like, oh, can, can we receive and can we offer ourselves into this conversation with that, with love of the Dharma and love of one another um, so that we can be whole? 
So thank you very much for being here. And thank you, Kaishin, for being in conversation. And thank you all for, for being here with us. Hello. I think next Chensing will read a, a bit and then we'll have a conversation. And um, and then we'll have plenty of time for opening up the conversation and questions and responses from the larger Sangha. Um, and then we'll end with a second piece of reading that Chensing will do. And then we will do a dedication of merit just to give an overview um, of our time together. Thank you so much, Kaishin. So first, I want to thank Sarah for that really moving framing of our evening together. Thank you for the invocation to welcome everything as being included. I really rejoice that we're creating this space of refuge here, even just in maybe the somewhat awkward format of Zoom um, here in my living room with the frozen time. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> and just to welcome all of the complex emotions, the mixture of grief and joy that I feel when I hear Aaron's name evoked. Um, it's so moving to me. Um, thank you, Kaishin, for being in conversation. I'm just so excited and so moved by your thought and care in holding this conversation. I want to thank everybody who's joining us this evening and people of the future who might be watching the recording as well. Thank you also. So we talked about me just reading a short excerpt from page 10 of the book at the very beginning. There are many origins of this book, Be the Refuge, Aaron Lee's blog, The Angry Asian Buddhist, and my subsequent emails and friendship with him being one of them, but also this broader concept or story. So I'll resist the urge to ramble on about it and try to read what is hopefully a more concise rendering. The dominant story of Buddhism in America is that there are two Buddhisms, the Buddhism of white converts and the Buddhism of Asian immigrants. What differentiates these, quote, two distinct and mutually isolated brands of Buddhism? We are told, for starters, that Western slash white Buddhists focus on meditation practice in keeping with their rational and modernist bent, whereas Asian slash Asian American Buddhists prefer the traditional and devotional rituals of chanting and bowing. It's not hard to guess which group is more likely to be dismissed as superstitious and which group is more likely to be celebrated as scientific. Though hardly its intended impact, the two Buddhism story too easily lends itself to less than flattering portrayals of Asian American Buddhists. In a 2014 blog post on the stereotypology of Asian American Buddhists, the angry Asian Buddhist weighs in, mincing no words. Buddhist Asian Americans are often surprised to encounter so many stereotypes about us. For all the claims that we mostly keep to ourselves in ethnic enclaves, there seems to be a rather thorough set of stereotypes about people who most white Buddhists claim to barely know. Worse yet is that these stereotypes are routinely cited as solid facts. The stereotypes are generally about how different we are from American Buddhists. These might sound familiar. 
We Buddhist Asian Americans are basically immigrants. We cannot speak English and carry a more supernatural bent. We focus our energies into holidays and spiritual beliefs instead of meditative practices. Some of us are Oriental monks who bring our exotic teachings to the West. The temples we attend aren't about spreading the Dharma. They're just ethnic social clubs. I could go on. Perhaps these stereotypes explain why Asians are American Buddhism's invisible majority, their faces and names largely absent from the Buddhist mediascape. In the words of a friend who doesn't call himself Buddhist, though the Japanese-American side of his family attends a Joroshinshu temple, it's a lot sexier to be Buddhist if you're white than if you're Asian-American. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, first, I also just want to say I'm so moved seeing everyone here and just feeling like we're collectively holding space for this conversation that feels so important to our Sangha, so important to American Buddhism. And I feel really grateful, Shenzhen, that you read that passage of just like jumping into, um, I think, the narrative landscape that we find ourselves in as American Buddhist, Buddhists. Um, and also to say that like hearing you read that passage and, and my experience of reading the book is just feeling like you love us so much. Like you love Asian American Buddhists so much. And you also love American Buddhists so much that you are devoting your life's energy to this question of, um, how do we dismantle this harmful narrative that actually keeps us separate and unable to um, really support the flourishing of American Buddhism? And like, what is that also? Like, what is American Buddhism? So I'm just like feeling the love in, in your writing and in your life's work. Yeah, thank you for loving us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I just wanted to start by this, um, a question for you around this binary that you bring up. Um, Chen Sing also recently led a uh, retreat for Asian American Buddhists at the Berry Center that I was lucky enough to go to. And I know a few people in this room also were able to go to. And um, what really, really struck me both in that retreat and also in this book is how the binary between heritage and convert Buddhists is really just... Um, not, uh, it doesn't capture the complexity of Asian American Buddhist experience. It doesn't capture the complexity really of like any of our experiences, I think. Um, yeah. But that is really the one that we've inherited that like a heritage Buddhist is someone who is authentically Buddhist, who is Asian, who has kind of like inherited it from many generations down. Um, and who also like, you know, inherits all those stereotypes that you just named. And then the convert Buddhist is someone who is inauthentic and who um, maybe like doesn't deserve to practice Buddhism or uh, or is alternately upheld as a real Buddhist in America. So um, I'm just very curious about this because for me, you know, my family, uh, my grandparents were Buddhists. They were Jodo Shinshu Buddhists and then completely uh, abandoned and buried that because of the trauma of the camps. And so I didn't grow up with Buddhism and I 
uh, found myself at the Brooklyn Zen Center in very mysterious ways. Like I was just like really drawn to Zen practice, really drawn to the Sangha. Um, and also feel like I can't place myself in that heritage convert binary. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious, like, like I want to free us from that mm-hmm. in a skillful way, like in a skillful mm-hmm. way, that's not just like, and we're all like, so let's say nothing about the distinction. You know, we have to honor the distinction, but I'm just curious for you um, when you think about that, like what is an alternative to that binary way of thinking? Like what is a more expansive way of understanding who we are in this practice and what we're responsible for? Mm. Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful question, right? So many people in this book are asking that question. So many people today for myself, not having grown up Buddhist, but now I think about half my life has been slowly steeped in the teachings of the Dharma and especially in so many different sanghas in the U.S. and across the world that just to be able to have, start naming these conversations, right? This book sort of began when I couldn't figure out where I fit in the two Buddhisms binary as an Asian American and convert. And then I started meeting people like you and many others who could trace some kind of Buddhist heritage, whether in Asia or even in the U.S. I mean, we can think about Duncan Williams's beautiful book, mm-hmm. American Sutra. Highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't read it. It literally begins with the story of literally burying Buddhism in the earth, because that was the level of violence that was that Japanese Americans were facing during that time. And of course, the legacies of those vi- vi- violences, that karma is something we inherit, that history, those stories. And so they think we're holding that. And then we're holding too. I was recently talking with Bhante Sanata Vihari, who was one of the wonderful speakers for the May We Gather Memorial in 2021. He gave a Dharma talk in Spanish, but he's been doing more work. Well, he works, he's a Sri Lankan Buddhist monk um, of Latino heritage. And he's also doing work in Sri Lankan communities in diaspora, Vietnamese communities in diaspora, as well as going to Southeast Asia. And he was reflecting, you know, I go to Asia and I meet people who are convert Buddhists or see themselves as such. Their parents weren't Buddhists or maybe it's back in their generation. So again, these sort of racialized binaries, and I think particularly that racialized element makes things really confusing. Mm -hmm. I meet plenty of black and white Buddhists who say I was raised, you know, in a Soka Gakkai or an insight, or I, I kind of feel like a heritage Buddhist. That was my heritage. I grew up in Buddhism. I don't understand why mm-hmm. I'm trapped also in these stories. And so, you know, in a way, Be the Refuge offers one very humble, almost vantage point or lens, which is simply just to remember generation. And I sometimes think that's just a way to say, mm-hmm. oh, remember the Buddhist truth that everything is impermanent, right? What we say about generation, we can tell a story that maybe came out of the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s, this frame of two Buddhisms. And like any heuristic, there's going to be some value in it, but there's also going to be limitations. And of course, as time passes, as generations change, no one no one wants to be an exact duplicate of their parents or their grandparents. We recognize, we inherit things and things are changed as well. You know, I always love Lisa Lowe's quote about Asian America, which I always thought could apply to American Buddhism as well, that, 
you know, what we call Asian America is partly something that we've inherited and then partly something that we modify and then I'm paraphrasing here and then partly something that we just create. And so I think all of these elements are happening at once. And so heritage convert, I think sometimes when people use certain phrases like that or concepts and it, I sense that they're using it in maybe a different way that I would, I love just asking them about, you know, how do you define that or what does that evoke for you? And I think words themselves have so much power. They have histories, they have such a richness, right? And Buddhism, I think, gives us many tools for actually holding them with curiosity, holding the word itself as sort of having form and having emptiness, you know, no form, form and no form. Yeah. Um, so I, it's, it's like, maybe there's not one answer to your question, mm -hmm. but what I find so beautiful about the Buddhist tradition or Buddhist traditions, we can say, is there's so many practices and sutras and stories and metaphors that are pointing us away from our tendencies to want to think in binaries and our tendencies to want to have one story and then making that, you know, the single story, which is why very early on in the book, I quote Chimamanda Adichie warning us about the danger of a single story. And I think maybe one more point I would add here is that, you know, in the passage I just read, I said Buddhist media escape. Um, I always think writers probably are always doing this with their work. It's like, oh, I really want to edit that sentence. And by that, I really mean the English language media escape. So there's many media escapes in the U.S. Um, that sadly I can't access the others because my Asian languages are not as great as I would like them to be, the various ones I've sort of know or half know or barely know. And so we might also ask, what do these categories of categories of heritage or convert, what might they look like or what might they sound like? Um, how might they be related to at the Thai temple nearby, the Lao temple, the Vietnamese temple, the Tibetan Buddhist temple? There are so many different lineages, so many sanghas in the U.S. that actually don't use English as their primary language or are very much multilingual spaces. Asking that question has really illuminated practices or not practices, concepts that I've taken for granted. And this is maybe, you know, a separate topic for another time. But even this question of practice, I think that word can mean a lot of different things. And I noticed a certain way that it seemed to be used in, and now I'm speaking very generally, but it was really interesting to me to encounter this word practice or what I would call a meditation resume check in certain sanghas that happened to be predominantly white convert. And then at majority Asian temples that I went to, or for example, in Jodo Shinshu temples, where the theology is not actually based around the same understanding of what do mean would mean by practice. And so all this is to say that expanding like beyond the binary and then expanding the view, including beyond English and thinking about we receive these teachings through countless translators, really through devoted translators who've given so much to us. I mean, I think I feel forever in their debt, that debt of generosity that we receive these teachings. And we know translation is a process that works with impermanent tools. And so there's so many ways to express this Dharma. And so to get curious about that too, and to wonder, this is the flavor that I have when I think of heritage and convert, but maybe someone else tastes something different when they taste mm. those terms when they 
embody those terms in their life. Maybe for someone else, there's a whole different way of thinking about things. And so at the end of the day, I think I ask the questions and I listen, and it's a great gift if someone else will ask the questions with me and share their perspective. And then together we start seeing this bigger picture. Mm. Thank you. That was very beautiful. And (laughs) it made me realize like when you said like, there isn't one like true story. I was like, that's what I would like though. Like, can you please give me like the one answer, like the one story to like correct it. And I feel like this is also, I mean, it's so present in what you just shared, but also in your book, which is like your answer to that is really to go deep into the complexity. Like you like kind of like, that's your, I feel like your superpower is like that you go, like, you're like, I'm going to tell more stories. I'm going to ask more questions, more people, like, let's make it more complex. Let's make it richer and more um, unanswerable. And Mm -hmm. so I just, yeah, I really appreciate that. And I also find it very uncomfortable. Like I really, it, it, I think it is a place where it's like, okay, well, we don't have a place to stand where it's, there's a right and a wrong. There's an authentic and an inauthentic. There is a clear way of like, okay, I, I now I know how to be like a good American Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> also, <laughs> yeah. And, and just feeling that. Um, and I think what you're saying about, you know, storytelling, I mean, it really made me feel also that, what you know, when we need, we do need stories, and that what we want is stories that help us be responsible for a particular like history or pain. You know, that actually helps us care. It's not a story that makes it more difficult for us to see our interconnectedness or our who we are indebted to. And so, I'm wondering about about that if you have any thoughts about that kind of storytelling especially Mm -hmm. because your you know your work is so much about just weaving an intricate tapestry of so many stories Mm. yeah like what skillful what is skillful storytelling um that's a beautiful question you know i think about sutra and the origin of that word just weaving together and i guess you know we're often thinking about how do we incorporate the dharma into everyday life whatever that looks like for us and I guess I just see humans as creatures who tell stories and have big imaginations and we can be, I think, limited or liberated by the stories we tell ourselves. So I find inspiration even just in a simple metaphor in Buddhist traditions, right? Like if we talk about the lotus growing out of the mud and it's a flower that can only grow out of mud and we start thinking about wow, the liberation that we seek or the peace arises because of suffering. You know, we opened this conversation, all of us feeling a bit of maybe tenderness or grief or nervousness or a mix of emotions. And I had the thought, oh yeah, if we didn't have those feelings, like we wouldn't need to be here (laughs) at all, right? If we didn't have suffering, we wouldn't need Buddhism at all. And so these teachings that have been transmitted to us, I think sometimes the way Buddhism is presented and the sort of default to, oh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. If you know those, you're covered, you're good. <laughs> like, And it can go in this very philosophical and abstract direction very quickly. But how do people learn? How do babies learn? You know, how do students learn? 
we learn as we learn as embodied creatures. I love going to temples where I see people taking, you know, the newborn and they're teaching. They're like holding the hands together and they're bowing. <laughs> and then maybe the young kid is like pointing at the Jataka painting on the wall and asking, oh, what is that? What story is that telling about the Buddha's past lives? And so we start getting these shared stories. But then of course, there's so many ways to interpret. And what makes me really excited is to see more Buddhist literature coming out by authors in general, but especially Asian American Buddhist literature, because this is just, yeah, it's such an alive question for me of what stories are out there that we're not hearing. I mean, we know within the Buddhist canon, canons, plural, there are so many stories, you know, I I could not even exhaust a tiny fraction of them in this lifetime. And the greedy part of me is very, very upset about that, actually. But every day I can learn a Buddhist parable or a story or an image, and I can see the ways also that there's differences between Buddhist traditions. It's, as you say, it's uncomfortable. And so maybe it looks different for different people. What does skillful storytelling look like? Mm. For me, thinking about it within a Buddhist frame, hopefully the stories that alleviate suffering or that grow a sense of joy, stories that open more Dharma doors, that's something that I really hope Be the Refuge can do. I felt that some of the stories I'd been telling myself, oh, to basically, in a nutshell, to be a good Buddhist, I needed to be a white meditator, that was not really opening any Dharma doors for me, quite the opposite, really. And interrogating that story, thinking about, wow, where did that come from? And there's no single person to blame, but sometimes it feels like it's in the air or it's in the ways that Asian Americans are or aren't talked about in the media. I mean, there's all of these subtle messages getting all the time or not so subtle messages. And then for me, there just arises this question of, okay, what are the stories that feel like they are just yearning to be voiced? yearning to be heard, almost like we think of Guan Ying as a bodhisattva who hears the cries of the world, Guan Su Ying. And I think, how do we attune our ear to the cries? How do we, Nicole Furlong, who's an educator at Columbia, um, at the Klingon Scene Center there, has a beautiful book on listening in Black literature, African-American literature traditions. And she talks about having her ears just low to the ground, listening to the low notes, those deep bass notes that can sometimes escape our consciousness, our awareness. What are we not paying attention to? So it seems like we very easily return to questions, right? But, you know, I can't, I remember my first time hearing in English, that expression in the Zen community, not knowing is most intimate. Sometimes I think, I think also not knowing is most uncomfortable and sometimes most <laughs> unwelcome when I would like control and I would like to push that away. But there is this kind of, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, almost a heartbreaking beauty to that or sometimes just an ache in that kind of truth of not knowing. So I sometimes think for me, stories that invite a little bit more ability to be with not knowing, a little bit more space around the fear of impermanence, of losing all that I hold dear, of death, of 
all that we're faced with, any story that helps me remember I'm not alone in Mm. being afraid or Mm. not alone in wanting so much for there just to be less suffering in this world or less suffering in this mind, (laughs) in this body. Sometimes I think we just know what those stories are. You know, they talk about the Dharma having one taste. (laughs) And sometimes I think we know what those stories are because we taste them in that moment. And maybe that taste is just what we need in that moment. Maybe sometimes we need something sweet and maybe sometimes we need something sour or salty. And maybe there are times in our lives we need something a little bitter to balance something out or spicy. I think there are so many flavors of the Dharma and yet sometimes there can feel like there's a way in which we just know, oh, yes, this is a story that nourishes me. This is a story that feels right and wholesome and that feels worth passing on for many generations. Mm-hmm. It cares for me and it cares for the ancestors and it cares for mm-hmm. the future as well. Mm-hmm. I really, really appreciate that. You know, it's interesting because there is a way that, you know, I feel like a skillful story can also be a story that brings up enormous pain because it acknowledges the pain. And I think when we talk about, when we're talking about their erasure of Asian American Buddhists in American Buddhism narratives and storytelling and the history of American Buddhism, um, what I sometimes can feel with that is like such an intense pain that it actually like makes me, it feels like skillfulness is like actually not available because the pain is so intense. Mm -hmm. And there's also, you know, because I think we've also learned from the dominant culture that, you know, the way, like once you've been erased or marginalized or um, lost power in any way, like the way to regain that is then to dominate another group or to like come out um is to like wield the violence yourself and i can feel that in myself like with the rage and the pain of this in particular and so it's just in thinking about this like in terms of you know there's been such a long history of not acknowledging asian american um buddhists in this country that there's like a part of me that's like, I just want to like, like, this is all that we can talk about for years and years and years. And then we can turn to something else, but like, this needs to be remedied. Like the pain is so intense. And then simultaneously, I also like want to hear and honor and, and um, cultivate like an American Buddhism that is multiracial, that is multi-ethnic, that is complex in all of the ways that you describe in the book and the people that you talk to describe in the book. And so I'm just yeah, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on that, like on like uh, on that need to center and to hold space for pain and then also to not get stuck there or to like use that as like a way to, um, yeah, hold oneself above other people and other ways of being. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I so appreciate this question. You know, I think it came up a lot in the interviews that I did for this book, this wanting to offer corrective. Sometimes it's really correcting the historical facts. Buddhism did not begin in America in the 60s and 70s, you know, with Zen converts or people who studied Tibetan Buddhism. Um, And 
that is one really important and rich, beautiful strand in the tapestry of that is American Buddhism. It's just not the whole tapestry, right? And so then we have, thankfully, people like, you know, Funisu, whose article, We've Been Here All Along, is lifting up the contributions of Japanese American Buddhists in the 19th century. We can think about Chinese immigrants, no doubt some Korean immigrants, the fewer in number, who brought Buddhism to this country. And of course, more recently, Southeast Asian and South Asian, and sometimes not even that recently. I think there are so many histories that have, sometimes we've lost all the evidence and maybe that's when we need truly our fiction writers and other writers who can help us imagine some of what those histories might likely have been. And then we also need our historians and people who are wondering and asking this question. Of course, not everyone in the world is going to be asking this question. So I, I still think it's very important to have some people to center it. And I can't help, I would love to read just a short passage um, to quote from Prupsadon Uk Prum, who's an incredible Cambodian-American dancer who founded the first gay dance troupe in Cambodia, Naturasa. I think he'll actually be here in the U.S. this year to do some performances. And he's in Japan at the moment. But last month I was in conversation with Tracy Palmer for the um, Natural Dharma Fellowship. And she was lifting up this quote. And I'm so glad she did because it just returned me to these beautiful words that Prum actually did for um, an interview for Dance Magazine. So I think it really speaks to your questions. I thought I might read it. Mm -hmm. There is a trope in American literature and culture of the minority torn between two cultures. A supposedly fast-paced American life is incompatible with the conservative values of the motherland. Somehow America always gets to play the force of liberation and freedom in this oversimplified scenario, with the places our parents come from being exoticized and flattened as backward. As a young person, I was trained to think this way. A big shift occurred when I recognized myself as a center. I am a being with the power to draw diverse forces together. I'm in, of, and between many different cultures, communities, histories, and approaches. Instead of trying to place myself in a spectrum, I contained the spectrum inside me. And suddenly, my struggles became a richness. I believe we are all situated as center. And in a way, it reads like a koan to me. I love that he says, I recognize myself as a center, not the center. But I think to know how to center oneself, or some of us who maybe have spent our whole lives telling ourselves that other people or entire other groups of people were more important, more worthy, their voices more deserving of being heard, then I think part of the practice is learning how to be that center, learning how to move differently, as it were, in the world, even if it's for a brief time, learning what it's like to take center stage. And I think too, though, as with learning to dance, one doesn't stay there forever. You can't hold the same pose forever. And so being in that center will probably give people a certain kind of power. And then I think it's so helpful to remember what was it like to not be in the center? What were some of the gifts of that as well? And how do we know, how do we learn to move more freely 
I don't know if I'm answering your question in this very direct way, but it's something I think about a lot, right? I began this book feeling, I, I guess I'm feeling just so lonely or alone or confused. And then the more interviews I did, and then the more of these conversations I had, the more actually just so much relief maybe came up for me because I think I started to realize really Asian American Buddhists are everywhere even if they're not a trending topic. Some of these people don't really want to be a center, but in the way they hold themselves, in the way their temple is operating, they're just the center because that's just the way things are. For me to see that as someone who didn't grow up with a community like that, that was very healing. And I think what's so beautiful about this category, this identity label that like all identity labels is slippery and changing and confounding and possibly a way to divide people and possibly a way to bring people together. It's kind of what we make of it. But Asian American Buddhist is just such a wide label. Buddhist is wide enough in this country, American Buddhist. I think any form of Buddhism on the globe, you can pretty much find here in the U.S., which is quite extraordinary. And then Asian American, as we know, is also a very contested term. And if we define it as people who trace heritage to the vast continent of Asia, we might be including Central, West, South, Southeast, East Asia. And so we're grappling with that in addition to the political roots of Asian America in the 60s and 70s. And recently I found some blog posts where some activists from that time talk about being influenced by Buddhism, but say, said we didn't really want to bring that up or we didn't want to bring spirituality up because we didn't want to be exoticized. We didn't want to be seen as superstitious. So again, the forces of these stories come back to us. And so I, I'm also very interested in the ways in that Asian American Buddhists now and even historically have put themselves not as center, sometimes for reasons of survival or sometimes because maybe that was the skillful means of that time. I think people continue to do that in environments where it's not safe to be out as a Buddhist. And so I wonder, it can be so healing to be center. And I think it can be so healing to be centered with others. Maybe that's also another big difference. I think I was so moved at Roots and Refuge, the Asian American Buddhist writing retreat that we were all a part of. It was just so moving for us that we all really co-held the space. I think we were able to be centered beyond that stage, stage, I guess, all, what is it? Seat in the Dharma seat. But in a way, you know, I think I remember being in that Dharma hall and it's a little strange to have the cushions behind the Buddha behind the cushions there. I, I like to imagine us sitting in this circle and being on, what are they called? One of those, um, like when you have dim sum and the, and you have a rotating table. So I'm not remembering what that's called in English. And um, I like to imagine just all of us on that rotating, just sitting mm -hmm. on our cushions, rotating. And so all of us get a turn to be in front of the Buddha. All of us get a turn to be center as it will or front of stage and then we get a turn to not be there and mm. to learn what it's like to move between those two I think is so incredibly valuable may our intention thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive for more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.